class. Please be quiet. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? Stay out of trouble. Welcome to the RPG Academy Network presents Film Studies. Welcome, classroom. I am Callum, and I will be your teacher of foreign cinema. But this time, yet again, I am selling out with an American blockbuster. We're going to talk about Hackers from 1995, directed by Ian Softly. But let's take attendance and see who is joining us today. Phil, could you briefly introduce yourself and tell me what type of teacher would you be? at the Film Studies uh, faculty. Oh, sure. Hi, uh, I'm Phil Vecchione from the Misdirected Mark podcast and Pandas Talking Games, game designer, podcast blogger. Um, the type of faculty I would be, um, I'll be the super nerdy mechanics professor. I really like to break things apart and look at how different pieces of film and games and everything all interact with each other to produce the effect that we actually see and experience when we uh, consume this kind of media. Oh, okay. So, so it's a game mechanics. It's not actual cars you're doing. Yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, that's my, that's kind of my jam is to kind of break things apart, um, name them and talk about how they uh, work and how they interact. Kira, what about you? Uh, who are you and uh, what sort of teacher would you be? I'm Kira McCran. I'm a queer non-binary game designer in Columbus, Ohio. And gosh, I, well, so I went to art school, so I'm cheating a little. I love film studies. It's one of my favorite things. So I'd probably be like the theory aesthetics teacher that would go into like deep art historical references from several decades of film. <laughs> And... uh Yeah, those are the kinds of things like I really love talking about like cultural significance and um, various viewpoints that artists are making things from. Ohio, that means unlike me, you maybe had already opportunities to go to Akadecon, the convention from the RPG Academy? I've never actually been there, but yeah, it is on my list of places to go. Oh yeah, you definitely should because the film studies is part of the RPG Academy. So I never went to Ohio and to Akadecon, but uh, yeah, hopefully I, I will one day. So you definitely should, and anyone within the vicinity should. But let's go back to Hackers. Let's start with a little bit of content warning. Hackers itself contain quite a bit of profanity and even a tiny bit of nudity. So you are warned. Today with film studies, I don't expect us to use explicit language we will keep it clean but we still might depict scenes uh, like 16 something smoking cigarettes repeatedly in that movie <laughs> Kira tell me what is your one sentence review of this movie and what's your rating on a scale of five stars this is one of my favorite movies of all time so um, 
You know, my tagline for the movie is one of the the quotes that we used to say as teenagers in the 90s. And it was, mess with the best, die like the rest. <laughs> so you would actually say that in uh, in schoolyards and so on? No, not in the school. Like, um, in the culture. Like, I grew up in Philadelphia as a teenager in the 90s. We would go to, like, warehouse raves. And, like, it looked exactly like it did in this movie. <laughs> oh, really? That's cool. It's the same culture, yeah. So, like, I was, like, a part of this culture that this movie is talking about. My rating is five stars. I'm very biased, though, because <laughs> I love this movie. What about you, Phil? <laughs> My one-sentence review for this is, this is Scooby-Doo in the 90s if they had computers instead of a van and lived in New York City. And I definitely give this four stars for the movie and five stars for the soundtracks. Amazing. My own rating is 3.5 stars. You know, as I'm covering more and more movies, I feel like I need to look at what ratings I gave to different movies and put them side by side. So I didn't feel compelled to give it more than that in comparison with other movies, which I liked at least as much. Where I'm missing out tremendously compared, for instance, with my wife, who loves hackers, is that I didn't see that movie in the 90s. I saw it for the first time around when I got with my wife, actually. So it would have been 2010, maybe 2009. So I didn't have the pleasure of being in the middle of it. But as I was writing the summary of the plot, uh, I came up with my tagline, uh, down to me a connection. And then I came to our little G-Doc where we put off things and I realized that I was exactly on the same line as you, Phil. <laughs> because my tagline would be, I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling hackers. Absolutely. So definitely this Scooby-Doo vibe going on, if not some um, casting in common with Scooby-Doo, but more about that later. Uh, because it's time for me to give the plot summary of the movie, which, as it is a tradition with me, tends to be over-exhaustive, especially at the beginning. Then it we go a bit faster. So, spoiler alert, this review and the summary, of course, will spoil everything. So if you haven't seen this movie and wish to watch it, you should definitely go check it out before listening to the rest of this episode. Seattle, 1988. On a beautiful afternoon, a SWAT team raids a middle-class suburban house. The heavily armed agents break in and surprise an average mom, played by Alberta Watson, as she is preparing dinner. They proceed upstairs before knocking down a bedroom's door. Cut to a courtroom where a prosecutor is slaying down the charges. The accused... Elias Zero Cool has committed multiple criminal acts of a malicious nature. He possesses a superior intelligence which he uses to a destructive and antisocial end. His latest crime? He crashed 1,507 computer systems, causing a seven-point drop in the New York Stock Exchange. The camera pans, and we finally discover the accused, Dade Zero Cool Murphy, who is an 11-years-old child. The verdict? Dade's family is fined $45,000, and Dade is banned from computers and touchstone telephones until he is 18 years old. 
the child is taken away from the court surrounded by a crowd of journalists and flashing cameras. Seven years later, an 18-year-old date, played by Johnny Lee Miller, is flying with his mother to New York. As they are above the city, the urban landscape turns into motherboards and circuits. In the evening, Dade has not unpacked his moving boxes yet, but he's already busy typing on his computer. What are you doing? asks his mother. What are you doing? I'm taking over a TV network, mom. <laughs> his mother replies, don't step late, honey. Push up, honey. And happy birthday. And happy birthday. While hacking a local television, Dade now under the alias of Crash Override runs into another hacker called Hassid Byrne. Despite Dade's claim that if you mess with the best, you die like the rest. Yes. <laughs> he is the one getting disconnected. Shit on me. After a first day at school, full of the usual new kids in town awkwardness Sorry, and pranks, including a non-existent Sorry. rooftop swimming pool, oh Dade becomes part of a group of computer-savvy students. Ramon, the Phantom Freak Sanchez, the Phantom Freak. Emmanuel, serial killer Goldstein, we have no names, man, no names. We are names. Paul, Lord Nikon Cook, and Joey Pardella, who doesn't have a handle yet. Wait, wait, how the master of they are played by Santiago Renoli, Matthew Lillard, Lawrence Mason, and Jesse Bradford. They'd also found an antagonist slash love interest in the person of the cooler than ice Kate, Just made an enemy for life. who is played by Angelina Jolie. She turns out to be no other than Acid Burn, the hacker who handed Dade his ass. And choose many shenanigans, with our hackers competing, clubbing and watching Hack the Planet, her hacker team TV show by a duo called Razor and Blade. One day, Joey, despite still being a rookie hacker, breaks into the Gibson. This supercomputer is used by Ellington, an energy corporation. Joey manages to download files labeled garbage before his mother disconnects his computer. But it is too late! Joey's feet has been noticed by Eugene the Plague Belfort, played by My Fisher Stevens. Is the Eugene is a hacker turned head of IT security for Ellington. My memo on used the file Joey downloaded could expose a scam that Eugene uses to defraud several millions out of Ellington. I don't want to go to jail for this. Eugene reacts by accusing Joey of inserting a virus into the supercomputer I had to move fast. in order to have the US Secret Service go after the young hacker. Hackers penetrate and Eugene actually planted himself this virus called Da Vinci. It threatens to capsize the energy company's oil tanker fleet. The little boat flipped over. It would result in multiple oil spill catastrophes. Joey is arrested by the Secret Service. It's time for hackers to retaliate. This is an opportunity for Date, aka Crash of a Right, and Kid, aka Acid Burn, to have a contest. So here's the, deal. the winner will have to wear a dress and go on a date with the other, or be the slave of the other, and choose a series of hacking pranks against the Secret Service agent Richard Gill, played by Wendell oh, Pierce. The agent sees his credit cards cancelled, his phone number spammed by saucy calls, a criminal record created under his name, and his payroll status changed to 
disease. I'm what? But the duel between Dead aka Crash Override and Kate aka Acid Burn remains a tie. Time. Meanwhile, Eugene's used Dade's record as zero cool to blackmail him. I need Regardless, Dade and all hackers work out what is going on with Eugene and his Da Vinci virus. Whoever wrote this needs somebody to take the Dade and Kate reach out to Razor and Blade from the Hack the Planet TV show. We need your help to overload the Gibson. They need the help from hackers around the world. After learning that Dade is the legendary zero cool, Razor and Blade agree to help. But you are going to need more than just two media icons like Hackers us. around the world launch an attack on Ellington's supercomputer. Using this distraction, our heroes manage to get the information they need on a disc. <laughs> yes. But they get arrested by the Secret Service. Please. Hack the planet! Hack the planet! Yes, Dade to the crowd the as he is taken away. Thankfully, Serial Killer, uh, the one played by Matthew Lillard, finds the disc which was left behind by Dade. As Dade and Kate are being interrogated, Razor and Blade jam television signals with a live broadcast. Serial Killer is on screen. He reveals Eugene's scheme to the world, or the state of New York, I guess. Our villain flees, leaving behind Margot, his furious accomplice slash love interest. Played by Lauren Bracco. That's a bit late to mention, but uh, that's like that. Later, <laughs> Eugene the Plague Belfort is arrested Stewardess! on a flight to Japan. Their names clear. Did crash over ride and Kate Acid Burn go on their date? I can't believe they decided you won. Did was elected the winner, and Kate is wearing a dress. Guys felt it was the only way I'd get a date. Did takes her to a rooftop swimming pool. From there, he points to skyscrapers. He has hacked them to spell out crush and burn. <laughs> the end. I mean, technically it kind of looks like they're both wearing a dress on the date, but they don't say that they're both wearing a dress on the date, so maybe that's just my headcanon. No, no, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I think, I, I believe that date is wearing a date. I think they say in the last line, they only said he won so that they would go on the date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm a bit old for that, but at the age they were... I would say if I enter the contest with Kate, played by Angelina Jolie, saying, if you lose that contest, you're going to be my slave and wear that dress slash thing she purchased, I would be very happy to lose that bet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no issue with that. I think that is also heavily implied when she's like, not a good slave, dude, an annoying one. <laughs> you, you have to do all my paperwork. Like She like, points that out. I thought that was so funny. They both have wet dreams on the topic, actually. Yeah, it's cute. It's so teenager romance, like horny times. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's a very horny movie, but it's still kind of chaste at the same time. Yeah. Kira, what would you say was your favorite thing about the movie? Oh my god. I love everything about this movie. It's so cheesy in so many ways, but I mean, like I said, I'm I'm pretty biased in that like I grew up in kind of like in this culture in the 90s. So it felt like it was a movie like for us. Kind of like The Matrix. You know, it was kind of like the cool cyber fashion that was like popular at the time. That's quite fascinating for me because, uh, you know, growing up in Europe, yeah. even if I had seen this movie in the 90s, I mean, I was not exactly a well-informed cool kid, <laughs> but um, yeah, I would not have imagined that 
whatever it depicted was accurate in any way. So it's very interesting to hear that actually it's much more accurate than one could imagine. Yeah, and I guess, I mean... I, I knew some like hacker teenagers, but not like on this level of hacker teenagers. Like that part is kind of fictional in some ways, although it is based on a true story. They interviewed hackers from the late 80s to like kind of understand what kids were doing during this time period before the movie was made. So that's pretty wild. It's all like based on real stories. But the culture where it was kind of like cyberpunk, you know, like cyberpunk clothes was part of kind of like the cyber goth culture at the time, which was pretty huge in Philadelphia. Like we would go to clubs and it was common to kind of see people wearing clothes like this. And, you know, warehouse raves, which was like a thing in the 90s with like, you know, psychedelic culture and like all the psychedelic imagery in the movie kind of reflects that. It's just very subculture. It's it like hits a time period of subculture very well, which uh, yeah, I don't know. Like not nothing else really does that except for the Matrix. The Matrix is more like sci-fi styled, you know. What else do I love about this? I don't know. There's just like so much to love. There's so many iconic lines from this movie. The music, the soundtrack was amazing. This was like the music that we listened to in at those aforementioned clubs. So, like, it was literally like, okay, it's Orbital and Prodigy and Massive Attack. It was just, like, the music of the time. And looking back at it, it's just, like, a total nostalgia trip. <laughs> what about you, Phil? Were you on the scene as well? Uh, you were in the, the right age to enjoy all of that when it came out? Yeah, so, so I, have a similar, I have a similar but different set of experiences. I actually grew up pretty rural. I grew up outside of New York City. But one of my good friends when I was in high school was actually a pretty prominent hacker and used to just take the train into New York City and like hook up with the people in the 2600 club. And he was a phone freak. And, oh, wow. And so <laughs> for me, while I didn't get the chance to do the raves and things like that, my first telephone tester was boosted from the back of a Verizon van and... <laughs> Um, I, I'm assuming there's no statute of limitations on these things, you know, and, and I learned how to, you know, hook it up to phone lines and, and things like that. And, you know, my friend had a pay phone in his room and, you know, just stuff like that. So, and when he would get together with some of his other friends who were hackers, like it was like this, like they would talk about the stunts and pranks they had done and the things they had hacked into. So yeah, for me, a big part of this movie is the hacker culture. Of just, you know, how, like, the things they did and how they got along. And so that was, like, that That was also nostalgic for me. And it's funny because I'm in IT, and so, so much of this movie <laughs> isn't really based on how computers work, but yet there's so much of it that you can tell that the research was done on how things used to work or, you know, were just different enough as not to fall into the same, you know, problem that Steve Jackson ran into when he wrote the Cyberpunk GURPS supplement, like where the Secret Service shows up at your door. So, yeah, it was great. Like, I, I loved all the hacker culture of that. And then, yeah, for me, the soundtracks, all three of them are amazing. I still listen to them. I still have a mix on my phone that is all three hacker soundtracks, <laughs> just so that I can, you know, it's especially like when I used to write code and stuff. Orbital's Halcyon and on, which is the song that's playing when Dade's on the plane 
at the opening of the movie. Quintessential. Yes. It's that, a quintessential song. Yeah, that is that is peak coding music. That would be me like, okay, I got to get this code done before the end of the day. And I just put Orbital on and like put your hands on the keyboard and you're just like in, like you're in the zone. That reminds me, I would listen to music like that when I was studying architecture. So in French, we call that charrette. It's when you do a... A night without sleeping, working on a project. Uh, that mm. That's an architect thing. I think it might be used even in English. All-nighter is the word for the, the English version of that, the all-nighter. Yeah, I wonder if in the UK they don't use charrette as well, uh, because it's, it's reminiscent of, I don't know, uh, 18th century when students would throw their plants in a cart. Charrette is, an, is a cart. <laughs> There's a weird story anyway, but... Uh, yeah, we listen to music like that. You're in the zone <laughs> when you are working. And uh, I was very lucky after seeing this movie. So again, around 2010 or something like that, I had the pleasure of seeing in live concert Left Field, who was also one of the bands on the soundtrack. And uh, that was quite cool. And uh, in Belgium, some things are less illegal than in the UK. So I could enjoy that uh, <laughs> much more, despite being a kind of a square, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, my own thing I enjoyed in this movie, I, I really liked the cinematography, and especially I was reading uh, a bit of the trivia. There are loads of trivia about the culture, about the books they show are real things. There's a manifesto they read out. That's a real manifesto. There's a, a lot of nods to the real world of hackers. But I really liked that they decided that when they would show the inside of the computers or what was going on in terms of hacking, they are not using CGI as much as footage of models and remote control stuff with video processing overlays above them. Uh, I really like the, the mindscape, which is really, I guess it's got a sort of MTV vibe to it, which I really enjoy compared to other more recent movies where they, they would show you CGI or a user interface or, or something like that. I really like the use of Stock footage also, especially in the first hacking scene where they're trying to control a, a local TV network and they, they pick different things that they want to watch on VHS tape or some kind of tapes. I really, really enjoyed those scenes. What about stuff you disliked? I think actually, Phil, we agree on one thing we thought was not very well written. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, um, you know, I, I don't think they do a very good job with Margot who's the Ellington executive, who is the accomplice and slash girlfriend of the plague. Yeah, I just, I, you know, and it's a shame because she's a fantastic actress. I, I think she, what was later on in The Sopranos, right? Like she's, she's fantastic, but like it's, it's not a very well-written role for her in this. And in fact, in my group of friends, one of the quotes we'd always quote was from her about losing all your toys, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah not my favorite and i have it's very hard for me to say anything else about this movie that i didn't like because i love this movie and i'm like here i'm like ridiculously biased towards this movie <laughs> so the writing reminds me of 80s movies where it's kind of like a series of montages with a very loose story like real genius it's a lot like real genius yeah yeah it's funny it's not a campus movie but it's almost yeah the thing with margot i'm not sure what's her purpose in the story because on one hand i guess she's supposed to be there as a stand-in to get some exposition about what is going on at times with the computers and so on but at the same time each time they give this specific kind of exposition for me it was kind of breaking a bit my suspension of disbelief because the explanation were 
yeah, really unnecessary and not very interesting. Like, oh, it's like a cancer. Cancer. Brain cancer. What do you mean? I don't understand. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was very bad. <laughs> I was kind of lost with the scheme of Eugene at some point, uh, rewatching the movie yesterday or so. I was like, what is going on? Uh, <laughs> this is a virus, a worm. I guess it's simple, but yeah, the way it was conveyed, I, I was a, a bit lost by that. What about you, Kira? Uh, beyond all the nostalgia, are there still things that you, you two were not as enjoyable as the rest? Yeah, it's really funny because I think one of the things that made me love this movie the most is that it really feels like the diverse cast really feels like it is from New York City. They get so many people of different races and genders, and it feels like the city, you know? But, and I, at the time, I loved Angelina Jolie's character. I'm like, oh my God, I want to be her. <laughs> I want the elf hair and like the one piece wetsuit, motorcycle jacket. Like, it was outrageous. Like, she was so cool. But uh, despite that, it does have like, I mean, it's kind of sexist. It does have like the sexist camera angles. It's like, let's see Angelina Jolie's underwear in the pool. You know, she is treated like the girl of the group. She's, which is unfortunate. And there is that one, there's like that wanted ad where it is kind of transphobic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, despite there being like lots of queer and trans styles and people like kind of undercover like characters, like some of the characters are kind of queer, even though they don't come out and say it. So it's kind of weird. Like that juxtaposition is kind of weird in that like it feels progressive, but they definitely made some mistakes that were pretty common at the time. So that age is less well over time. <laughs> I'm afraid that transphobic wanted ad flew over my head. Would you mind uh, tell me what actually what it's about? Because I'm not sure what you are referring oh, to. Oh, so when they're having the hacker battle, when... Um, Acid Burn and Zero Cool are having the hacker battle to go on the date. And Zero Cool sets up the wanted ad for the FBI agent. And then all those people start calling him. The wanted ad oh. is asking for like trans people. And, but it's kind of played as a joke. So it's, it's not, it's not super great. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I can, I can see a little it touch now. of kink uh, shaming. Yeah. And yeah, there's a few things. Yeah. Yeah. And at the, on the one hand, it's like, I think all of these characters in this culture are like very welcome to all those things. And those things exist in the movie too. Like the movie is kind of kinky and queer, but then they have this ad that's played as a joke, which is like the opposite of that. So it's, it's, it's just kind of weirdly placed. It's, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> Moving forward. I mean, uh, are there more things you liked and disliked that you'd like to discuss before we move to the next question? Kira, did you say the, like, you, you said all the, like, clothing and costuming and stuff, right? Because, like, that stuff's amazing. Like, even all the way down to how the laptops are done. Like, everybody's distinct laptop backgrounds, like, all of it. <laughs> I love. I had that laptop. My dad was a computer programmer. We had the briefcase laptop that they showcase in the movie and the tiny laptops mm -hmm. that were, like, they were kind of, like, the beginning of laptops. <laughs> Which was so cool. And and yeah, you're right. Like how they individualized all of their backgrounds. Like like my brother and I did that on our computers oh, I did. when I, we were yeah. teenagers. Like we changed the mouse icon. Yep. And like <laughs> I did all of that stuff. I customized icons, wallpapers, sounds. 
There's a YouTube channel called Hackers Curator where this guy goes through and he like builds replicas of props from the movie, including like most of the laptops and a number of the costume pieces and stuff like that, like Dade's jacket, Kate's backpack, things like that. Oh, yeah. There are still parties in New York City that are hackers warehouse parties. And they have all this fashion, like they wear all this fashion in the parties. And there is like, like I died when Lord Nikon is in the police place at the end and he's wearing like full on black vinyl pants. Like that was such a a staple of nineties alternative fashion. And like, (laughs) I I can't remember what else. There's like lots of mesh tops and like (laughs) the dresses they're wearing at the end that looked kind of, you know, Tokyo street fashion style and like all that type of stuff. Very cool. Kate's full, like, was it like the two piece armored ring? The one that like covers her whole finger? Oh, yeah. That was like a 10 year trend. (laughs) (laughs) We all had those rings. We got them at Hot Topic. <laughs> I noticed rewatching a, a segment earlier today that uh, there's no notion of indoor and outdoor. They can be indoor at night and they wear sunglasses, <laughs> or they can be indoor so and they still wear their they still wearing his biking jacket. Although although he doesn't have a bike and he's in his bedroom when people show up suddenly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really funny. It's very like um. There's a lot of fashion homage to William Gibson in this movie, like Neuromancer and stuff like that. They're kind of like making oblique references to like the style, even when they get like at the end when they're like, hack the planet and they unite everyone, all the hackers across the world. They unite hackers from like, I think, Russia, Germany and and Japan are the ones that are highlighted. They're like the three iconic cyberpunk countries of the 80s, you know? (laughs) It's just, there's lots of like really subtle stuff in there like that that's just really, just really great. The big mainframe is called the Gibson. And it's called the Gibson, yeah. (laughs) Gotta hack the Gibson, man. Yep. Little trivia. Actually, the inside of the Ellington Corporation is a building I visited. So when I saw it, I was like, wait a minute. That's in London. That's the Lloyd's. That's a rather famous modern building, which you can visit on special days. And uh, it's got such an iconic interior, which is really cool. And and the outside, it's really cyberpunk in itself, seeing that building. And um, yeah, we even have Dave Stewart from Eurythmics, who's the hacker in London during that sequence. So when you see hackers of the world. In a somewhat oblique way, and I think, Kira, you know Rob Abrazado as well, right? Yeah. Rob's sister went to the high school that's in Hackers. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what? Actually, I was reading, again, there's so many trivias about this movie. Apparently, the swimming pool on the rooftop is an actual joke from the initial building of the Stuyvesant School. There used to be the joke that there's a swimming pool on the sixth floor although the buildings used to have only f- five floors so it's not even uh yeah even that is something they borrowed from real life in, in some fashion it's so many stuff like that it's really amazing that's cool i didn't know that but gibson neuromancer fans of tabletop roping games are probably fans of as well phil would you recommend this movie to tabletop roleplaying games fans and why 
so I'll say yes, because uh, one of the things that happens in the course of the movie is a heist. So it is a uh, it's a great classic heist. And actually, it uses a whole bunch of hacker techniques, right? So there's dumpster diving in it. There's uh, social networking, right, where, you know, they try to, you know, they coax passwords out of people by walking through the office and, and talking to people and stuff. And then, you know, there's the actual hacking. So as well as the diversions, right? So messing up the um, the traffic lights and all that. So all of it is, it's a classic heist and it's a great, it's great. I love it um, in terms of, you know, treating it as a heist and kind of looking at what they do. So yeah, for role-playing purposes, you know, so many role-playing games, especially if you're playing a cyberpunk game where, you know, heists and jobs are, you know, pretty much a mainstay. But even if you're playing other genres, like it's a heist movie, heist movies are always good material. So then you mentioned the dumpster and there's the scene with the skyscrapers at the end being lightly messed up. It's completely left field uh, of a thought, but I was wondering, is Fight Club a hackers for middle-aged yeah. people? <laughs> because it's, I don't know why, but I was like, are there connections between those two movies? Because they, yeah, there, there were some things I thought there were similarities. It's like the more radicalized, like after everything doesn't work, they get like, you know, more desperate, more radical. Yeah, postmodern, uh, nihilistic, yeah, sort of things. Yeah, they are both countercultural too. Like they are both like, the system isn't working for us. We need to do something different. But what about tabletop RPG fans, Kira? Would, I mean, I'm sure you would recommend it, but why would you recommend it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a classic cyberpunk story, you know, and like Phil said, it is a heist and like so many role playing game scenarios are basically heist scenarios, regardless of what game you're playing. It's kind of like the bad guys are over here and they have something and you have to sneak in and get it or you have to, you know, somehow work against them through a series of actions. So it, it does fit that kind of story structure. And also what I what I think is really useful about it as a story is the like I was just talking about, it has the low life subculture hackers who are the main characters against the corporation in general. So against like the larger system or against things that are kind of um, that seem insurmountable as far as odds that and it's a group of a team of friends working together to fight them. Right. So it's it's very like. The team of main characters in Hackers could be your players in your game. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You two are convincing me because I was coming out of it a bit unsure, a bit like, okay, <laughs> it's so much about its visual aspects and uh, the, the music aspect that I wasn't sure how you would pull that out for tabletop pro playing. But yeah, but it's, it's clearly a cult classic and there's much to pull out from... Uh, I'm not that much of a heist fan in tabletop role-playing game. People are curious about that. Uh, Panda's talking game recorded an episode about heist following a comment I made about that <laughs> with Phil. But yeah, it's a, it's a cult classic. So if it's good for tabletop RPG fans, that would mean, I guess, that you could translate that in a role-playing game. But what system, what role-playing game would be great to uh, adapt this movie I'm working on a game that is partly inspired by this movie <laughs> because this movie is very like, um, this is kind of like a genre of cyber tech hacking movies or um, media. And it's very like, it's very William Gibson in a lot of ways, 
in the way that it's it's not like a power fantasy cyberpunk game with lots of guns, but it's just that you are kind of like hackers and you're just good at technology and that's all that you do. So the game I'm working on is kind of based on that idea. So it's like fits this and William Gibson and like um, Mr. Robot is like, you know, the newer version of it. But my game is called Sync. It's a power by the apocalypse game. But you could really use like any noir urban style game to play this. Like, and another cyberpunk game that would be good for it is The Sprawl, which is also based on William Gibson, but is more heist focused. So it actually has the heist structure built into the game. Like every session you can run a heist and there's different mechanics and different clocks that it uses to kind of work you through the heist and take you through flashbacks while you're doing the heist. It's super fun. The Sprawl, is it PBTA or Forge in the Dark or, or, or neither? It's PBTA because it was before Blades in the Dark. It's a it's a pretty it's an older game now. I don't know, like maybe nine nine seven years old. Oh wow, it's been around Time for a while. Still one of my favorite cyberpunk games. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Does that mean when you say that sync your game is partly inspired by hackers? Do you go as far as I don't know, like to some extent, Tales from the Loop and harkens back to the nineties with the specific tech of the time, or because it's. I think that's what's also fascinating about hackers when you see the, what they do with recorders and phone booths and so on. It's hacking, it's digital, but it's still analog to some extent, I guess. Yeah. Oh my God. In, in hackers, I love the montage scene when they're having the hacker battle and they go to the different locations, you know, like they're on top of like a radio tower and they're like in Chinatown. And the implication is that they're like plugging in mm-hmm. to these locations, like manually, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and so that that's really cool. My game is, does not have that specifically. It doesn't have the specific 90s tech, It but it does have the spirit of that where you use a combination of old tech and new tech to accomplish whatever you're doing. So it would kind of be like, you know, where you could go to like an old garbage shop down the street with all this garbage tech and compile something that would be useful to you. So Phil, you're actually in competition with Kira because you've got a a game in development also inspired by hackers. (laughs) It's just like Burn Override and uh, I forgot their name now. (laughs) Crash Override Uh, and Acid Burn? (laughs) Acid Burn. It's just like Crash Override and Acid Burn. You're going to fight it off with your two games so what, what's your game like no there's no there's no competition in rpgs <laughs> like we're all just doing <laughs> we're all just doing this together yeah but no i uh, i started actually at the beginning of the pandemic <laughs> i was watching hackers and i was joking around with a couple of my friends who are real big hackers fans and i started a draft of keyboards and rollerblades a lasers and feelings hack all based on hackers You have two stats, whether you're hacking stuff using keyboards or whether you're doing stuff in the real world, which is rollerblades, which we did not in the earlier part of this talk enough about the use of rollerblades in both the 90s and in this movie, right? Like if you were to sample this movie from another planet, you would expect that by now in 2020, we would all have (laughs) rollerblades. It was very like kids on skateboards culture, but instead of skateboards, it was rollerblades. Yeah. So yeah, I, I have a, I have a draft of it. I have a couple things left to finish on it. I need to make the little plot generator, but it's essentially going to be, you know, <laughs> a corporation does a bad thing and you, the teenage street hackers, have to band together to stop whatever nefarious plot the corporation 
is going to do. So yeah, I thought I thought lasers and feelings would be just totally fun for it. It's light, it's fun. You can get a good session's worth of play out of it. You know, it doesn't go much deeper than that, but I have it following the same pattern as lasers and feelings. You have to pick your style, what you look like, what your handle is, all of that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's funny because it reminded me that he's not on rollerblades, if I remember correctly, he's on a skateboard. But even the villain was substantially older. Maybe that's why he's on the keyboard. He's older. Right. Yeah. He's older. So he has a skateboard. <laughs> he shows up yeah. on the skateboard. That scene when he's blackmailing and there's a exchange of a disc in the middle of the night in a darkly lit street. And yeah, the classic scene would be the limo showing up, the window uh, yes. dropping down and the disc being passed on. But instead, the villain shows up. It's that midnight handoff of the disc. Yeah, and Eugene, he's rocking his skateboard and trench coat to come up and make the exchange. While still holding onto his limousine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's <laughs> pulling him along. Yeah, It's a very classic film noir scene with a smoke in the background even <laughs> and like a dirty backside street. But then he's like on a skateboard. He's like on a skate. It's so <laughs> absurd. It's like, I love how this movie does not take itself seriously at all. Like, it's just having fun. And it's great. Like, you can feel it. You're there with it. <laughs> I got my notes here. And I written down, is that Gotham City? Because there's like steam coming off the sewers. Yeah. It's dark. It's really, really over there. It's amazing. <laughs> You know, I worked in a startup in the late 90s, and there was somebody who rode a scooter through the hallway of the office to go to meetings and stuff. Like, that is not as far-fetched rolling around the office as it would seem at the time. Yeah, it was a thing. That's true. It's a great tradition of film studies that I talk about games I have not actually played. <laughs> so what I say is based on, is based on assumptions. <laughs> but I was thinking it could be interesting to have a... <laughs> hack of Alice is missing to translate hackers because you yeah you would play through mm. your phones exchanging text messages or you could do it on laptops of course you could even have an interface matching the 90s interface the action would take place through this exchange of text messages and maybe having a a few recordings and videos that you could exchange uh, now and then as any of you two played Alice is missing I really want to play it but I couldn't find a, an opportunity yet too. I haven't played it. I've seen a lot of people compliment it and it seems like a really cool game. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to play it yet either. I know, I think we were trying to organize it some like before the pandemic started and then we're like, well, it seems a little dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, if things get lighter, I will contact you too. Now I got two players <laughs> to try it. Deal. The other game I was thinking, again, the games I haven't actually tried yet but i heard a lot uh, about them uh it's tales from the loop and things from the flood and uh, the aspect from what i heard of those games which i think would be matching with hackers is this idea that you have a group of young people that older people don't listen to or don't keep tabs where they are going and what they're doing maybe there's something there to an aspect which is sl slightly less cyberpunk talk about hackers yeah you're right. Anything that kind of captures that like teenage rebellion would be pretty good for this movie, I think. I actually run both of these. Uh, I had actually a pretty long th Tales from the Loop campaign and a somewhat shorter Things from the Flood campaign using the same kids, like brought them from Tales from the Loop into Things from the Flood. Yeah, I love this game. 
it's got these great archetypes for the different kind of cliques of characters. So the things from the Flood Kids, the teens, would work perfect for this because they are very 90s archetypes. And the mechanics are built for solving mysteries. So it would work out perfectly in terms of like if you were if you were writing sessions for this, for them to kind of discover and learn what's going on and then to, you know, have the, you know, where they take action to stop it. That is pretty much the same flow in things from the flood. Since you present yourself as someone who likes to tinker, if you would be to run hackers with things from the flood, are there things you would change or that you would adapt? Not a ton because they have a, I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering this correctly, they have the equivalent of like a hacker skill in it. And they've got things for messing with technology and stuff like that, as well as then kind of the physical stuff. I don't think you would have to do a lot. If I was going to hack it to specifically play the movie, I would probably go through and look at all the archetypes and maybe make some of the archetypes kind of like different subcultures of hacker culture. So maybe a little bit more of a phone freak and somebody who's a, you know, somebody who likes doing hardware stuff and things like that. But not, I mean, I don't think you would have to do anything drastic. It's a bit like you would be playing an adventure and everybody's a bard. They all have different subclasses, but they kind of are all the same class. They're all the splicer, they're all the hackers. They're the hackers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very little tweaking would, it, like, you could do it very easily. Beyond adapting directly the whole movie into a tabletop role-playing game or its premise, are there concept ideas that you find especially interesting that you'd like to pull out and put in other games which are not necessarily cyberpunk, they can be something else, from the movie that you especially enjoyed? I do really like how it positions the characters. So how they're just kind of normal people who have like a cool talent and they're using that to fight corruption and and like stop an ecological disaster and shut down people who are stealing money from people. So I think that that is like a cool setup for like any kind of game. Like when you're thinking of like where to position your characters, especially marginalized characters, that's like a good, good setup. Continuing on that, I think what's quite cool with Acker is that, you know, often there's the notion of underworld and there can be an underworld fighting uh, against the man, against the powers which are in place. Mm-hmm. But often this underworld is described as, it's all dark. Here you see all this counterculture, but it's bright, it's got colors, they're having fun. It doesn't feel threatening. We mentioned the Matrix and uh, yeah, it's, Everything is happening in basements. Why here it's happening in colorful places with diverse people. I guess they're delinquent. What they do technically are crimes, but they don't feel like criminal organizations. <laughs> they, they feel like rebellious counterculture. Yeah, they're very punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> like they're very like they care about political issues. A lot of hackers get started trying to find workarounds from big corrupt corporations that are stealing from all of us, right? That's the the main theme of like kind of hacker culture. And I think that that is like really transferable to lots of different settings or stories or characters if that's kind of the main theme where you're like, hey, rich people kind of suck, the cops kind of suck. 
we're here writing manifestos to make the world a better place. That's what's really cool about this movie. I think at its heart, you know, and it's like just a cool, like sci-fi type aspect to that story too. Like, like you said, like the matrix while being like a big trans metaphor that we know it to be now, right. Is much darker in its aesthetics. It's more, it leans more into the goth side than the punk side. (laughs) A lot of things nowadays take themselves very seriously. Yeah. It's refreshing that this movie is not self-demeaning at all, but self-conscious and light-hearted. I do miss that, because we are still in the dark, grim era of genre for a lot of things. So whenever there's something very colorful or hopeful, it's kind of cool. And it was cool to kind of watch this movie and be transported back to a time of like um, internet hopefulness. Where like a lot of people, a lot of artists and subcultural people and tech people were like looking at what was happening with social structures on the internet and thinking like, oh, wow, this is going to be awesome. We're going to be able to do so many things with this. And, you know, we are where we are today, of course. But (laughs) this movie was still in the like hopeful set where it's like we this is new tech and it has potential. This is what it could do. I think it would be so cool if we can like remember that tech isn't you know, evil tech is a tool that we can use to do good or bad things. Yeah, I remember the early days of uh, of Wikipedia and stuff like uh, Hospitality Club or Couch Surfing, which even that has gone sour now. Yeah. This big enthusiasm for, well, when you're connected now, we can interact with one another wherever you are in the world and we can find information and we, we can do stuff. There are still stuff which I find amazing nowadays, but yeah, we tend to forget. I mean, since the pandemic, I'm subscribing to a service to learn musical instruments. I'm learning the ukulele and the guitar. Cool. And when you think of it, that's amazing that you got this tool so well designed for me to learn that. And it's mind blowing. It would blow my mind (laughs) when I was a teenager. But now there's so much going on that even the little bright element that we have today, we tend to forget them. Yeah, like, well, like as a zennial, <laughs> I grew up in a world that didn't have the internet, and now you know everyone has smartphones. So I've experienced, and you probably both have too, like both sides of that, which is really interesting. Like, uh, I, I mean, I think technology is awesome, and we should always try to make it and use it as ethically and, and well as we can, and that that you know it is a tool that can do amazing things. It's cool. You're the first person I. Even I have a chat with who present themselves as a xenial, which which I consider myself as well. As well. So it's like, hey, fellow xenial, <laughs> neither one nor the other. I personally don't believe in generational labels. I think they're ridiculous and silly. Yeah. But also, I mean, it is like that three years. Like, I find that people within those three years, like, we just have connections that other people don't. It's really interesting and strange. <laughs> Yeah, I will say that this movie um, is very much also a product of its time, right? So it falls into this really sweet space of the 90s where the Cold War was over. Yeah. And the war on terror hadn't begun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's in this like really optimistic slice of the 90s where everything is just, it's brighter, right? It's, It's a much more cheerful film as a product of when it was created. And I, I often joke with my friends that 
had I known that the 90s was, you know, going to be one of those last great decades, I wouldn't have been so moody during it. Um, (laughs) I just watched a video on Daria about that. That's interesting because Daria indeed is in the middle of that. And she was kind of already in the vibe of being nihilistic still or already because, yeah, there were reasons to be before and after. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, I was, uh, you know, again, not labeling too hard, but I was, you know, I'm very much a Gen Xer and I very much grew up, you know, with the concept that, you know, I wasn't going to actually have a future that, you know, it would all just turn to, you know, Mad Max at some point. Yeah. And so then when it didn't, like, it got really weird for a little while. But yeah, the 90s was this point where I was still really super nihilistic. But the truth was, like, the world was actually pretty optimistic. (laughs) Um, And I, you know, now regret that I didn't change tact when the winds changed. (laughs) You know, it seems so ridiculous as a concept now. And again, I'm talking out of my um, ass because I'm talking about stuff I don't have first-hand knowledge. But, you know, there were philosophers going around, including in France, in French, with this concept of the end of history (laughs) that, okay, now... Uh, Western power, the US and its allies have won. And uh, now it's just all the way like this till, I guess, some kind of Star Trek, which is not as cool. But there there won't be worldwide events. There won't be historical events anymore, just side events. (laughs) This idea was very wrong, but it definitely felt that way. But at the same time, it was a bit suffocating People were still longing for stuff to happen and change to happen because there are a lot of things we need to change. But when you are in that vibe, it's a very peculiar form of despair to be like, okay, we are in this static, sanitized environment now and and things won't happen anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's similar to the video essay I watched on Daria where it was kind of about the diseffectiveness of the 90s and of teenagers in the 90s and like, why were teenagers like this type of essay? Um, and it posits that, you know, even though we had this huge boom in prosperity in the US and capitalism was doing its best, it still sucked for everybody. <laughs> like... There was like an emptiness to it that everyone felt, even though it was at its height. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. Phil, you wanted to build up on uh, the agriculture? I think one of the really cool transferable things, going back to things that you could transfer into other RPGs, right, is just looking at the hacker culture that's in the movie, right? Like they have their hangouts. They have their own way to kind of show who has skills, who doesn't, right? Like things like handles. One of my favorite scenes where they go through the books. Yeah. Right. Cause they're, they're trying to like figure out is zero cool. Like, is he like, is he really good or not? Right. So they're like running through the books to see if he you know, like knows all the established cultural icons, which are real books. <laughs> I yeah. Find fascinating yeah. Also. The fashion, even the way, like even in hacker culture, like they wind up having a rivalry, like they had turf, right? Like the whole thing started. Because Crash Override went into a system that was acid burns. He invaded her turf, and that's how that like rivalry started. If you look at it through the movie, one, it totally works if you're going to do any kind of hacker culture in another game. But if you're going to have or create your own kind of fringe culture, like for my game Hydro Hackers, plumbers in this um, hydropunk world, right? Plumbers are its own culture. 
and it's an underground culture. And so how do they, like, where do they hang out? How do they show skills? What are their cultural icons, fashion, those kinds of things? So you can like take those ideas and kind of figure out for your setting how an underground culture might have those things. From what I heard from Hydro Hackers, again, a game I can talk about without having played at all, there's quite a bit which is about the community, and that's also something we see here. They got their hangout, but it's more than a hangout. There are people over there they interact with, and they can support mm -hmm. them, even with the, the TV show. I'm a big fan of the idea of role-playing games that are about supporting and building communities. And so I, I picked it up years ago in a game called Underground, and I've one way or another, it, it seeps its way into... Uh, designs that I work on. I just love that idea. And it's it's very much part of Hydro Hackers. Sounds like totally my jam. I love stuff like that. You know, the next time Origins is safe enough to appear at, I will totally run something if uh, if you like. Yeah, let's do it. Run it online. I cannot come to Origins. <laughs> <laughs> I could do that as well. I could also run it online. Kira and I overlap at one convention. So I know like we see each other at Origins. Yeah. Unless my financial situation changes dramatically, I... I cannot travel yet. But if some hacker is has got, you know, they're slicing salami and they got a, a few million or just a single one they don't know what to do with, they can put it on my PayPal me, which is linked in the description of this episode. And I will very happily fly to Origins. Cool. <laughs> my own thing, it really resonated with stuff I'm, I'm very interested in at the moment in tabletop role-playing games. It's when they were hacking... You had a bit of computer interface, but not that much, actually. It was more psychedelic. You see what they're doing, but is it what they're doing or is it how they're picturing it in their head? There's a lot of visuals like that. So it's more about the mindscape and the context of their actions. I really love the scene when they're taking turns at working out a solution to help Joey. And you don't see the, the computer screen at all. Actually, you see what's happening behind each time the one who is on the computer. So you see the others goofing around, reading books, trying to work out things, or, I don't know, eating pizza and this sort of thing. So it's it's more about the context and, okay, that's a scene when they're hacking, but we are not showing you the hacking because actually no one really exactly cares about that. It resonates with me because it makes me think of things like, I thought with superheroes, for instance, that masks the new generation really blew the things completely in great sense that Okay, if you want to play superhero games, it's not about balancing out with points and skills and so on. A speedster versus a Superman versus a Spider-Man or a Captain America because nothing makes sense in terms of balance. It's about what is going on with each other. Are they afraid? Are they frustrated? It's about the emotions, the exchange. So I love the idea that you could eventually describe a scene in a tabletop role-playing game of hacking but instead of saying, okay, you type this and you see you're in the, the computer mainframe and you see the interface and so on, the game master would instead ask questions like, what do you think is going to be the consequence of what you're doing? What do you think is happening in that room in this remote place? What are you thinking about at the moment or what is going on behind you? I think it's something we should lean into much more in tabletop role-playing game, trying to focus. We recorded an episode about... Fast and Furious 5? <laughs> I love Fast Furious movies. <laughs> I must admit, I'm a bit embarrassed, but I gave it more stars than I gave it to hackers. And that's, <laughs> that's really bad. But I was very pleasantly surprised by Fast and Furious 5. But I was 
taking the example of a game which is a for the queen game called Final Lap, in which you play a race. And when you play a race in role-playing games, you would think, well, it's about rolling dice and trying to be the, the winner of the race and so on. And Final Lap, it's not at all about that. It's going to be the champion who's going to win the race, but it's about, oh, this thing happened. Oh, it triggers a flashback. You remember someone trying to corrupt you about the race. So what happened in that flashback? Or, oh, someone had an accident. Do you go out and help out that person who had an accident? The champion, she just passed you by. What do you think at that moment? What's your relationship to the champion? All this stuff actually matters more than the physicality. Like in a Kung Fu movie, the fight is nice, but it's about the relationship and the drama between the characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's my favorite way to play games, actually. I love, like, I think characterization and character drama and growth in relationships is, like, probably my focus of all games. And so, so like, I care less about, like, kind of, like, the technical information and more about, like, how can we get more of this character story and drama going, you know? And, like, what's actually going on in these characters' minds? Like, what are they thinking or feeling? One of my favorite GMing or just like role-playing techniques in general is asking someone directly, like, what does your character feel about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like, what are you thinking right now in this situation? You know, or getting them to monologue a little bit, their internal feelings. You're picking a lock, but you remember the master thief who taught you how to pick a lock. Uh, who was that person and what's the memory you have of them and the sort of things that, that could be cool and really flesh out some games. A GMing technique I love is if characters are working on something together, like I'm fine, like we can make the role for that thing, you know, like for whatever that action is in a second. But what are you guys talking about? Right. Like, what are you guys talking about? Like, while you're working on this, that's the scene that I want to have. Like, we'll roll to see if you translated the scroll, but what's the conversation? Like, what are you two bickering about or what are you two discussing while you're doing the translation? Because <laughs> like every interaction, every scene, it's kind of like in a movie where the scene isn't about the technical code that you're writing for the hack. It's about what are these two characters doing in that scene while they're doing the code? Like, what is the scene really about? It's about, you know, mm-hmm. it's about Dade and Kate flirting. That's what that scene is about. So, yeah, that's good stuff. I think that's something they sort of understood with, I guess, Marvel movies. There's a lot of little... One which comes to mind is in Age of Ultron, you got Clint Barton, Okai saying, okay, this doesn't make sense, but uh, let's just go out and do our thing and and you will be an Avenger and it will be fine. Don't don't think about it too much. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Are there other things you'd like to discuss in terms of ideas you would like to apply to a role-playing game? I think I covered a lot. (laughs) But you had a long list, Kira. Let me look at my list. (laughs) You have a huge list. I never had that many items in a list before. I think as a story, this is just like so gameable. It's just like a very gameable story. Like the settings that they give you are so cool. Like... When you're thinking of urban settings, this has like some really good ones, like the arcade where they can like, it's just like the perfect, most beautiful fantasy arcade that ever existed, where you can like rollerblade in there and it's a giant open warehouse and there's like spray paint on the walls and there's like huge video games you can play and cafes and stuff. It's just like ridiculously cool hangout for the characters, you know? And the apartments that they're in, like they have all the different apartments, like his mom's apartment and Kate's like... Upper West Side apartment and the more like co-op, you know, spray painted 
you know, hippie style apartments, you know, where Lord Nikon lives and all the different clubs that they have. Oh my God, the hacker hangout of the two um, characters they go to for help. I can't remember their name. Razor and Blade. Yeah, Razor and Blade. It's just like this fantasy like pad with like all this cool stuff in it and like stacks of TVs. I don't know. It's just like the different settings are so iconic in this movie, I think. And I feel like they're cool inspiration for like when you're creating urban environments in your game. It's when you mentioned Razor and Blade and I was remembering about the hangout that they got a gun yeah. on a robotic arm, which is threatening our heroes. But the gun turns out to be a lighter. It's not a real gun. It's a, it's a prop. But it's also refreshing to have a movie in which the heroes don't use guns yep. at all. Yeah. You, you see a lot of guns, but it's strictly the man, the authorities who wield them, yeah. not the heroes. Yeah, that's a key part of my game sync that I'm working on is that the characters can't fight. They suck at fighting. It's not about fighting. It's about hacking. <laughs> so there's not like, you know, physical violence, really, you know. Also, I feel like that gun scene was like a direct reference to the Johnny Mnemonic movie with Keanu Reeves that came out. <laughs> like, I don't I feel like that that came out first, which is like very bad, but it's still a super enjoyable movie. But I think that he doesn't he also have like the same like HUD sunglasses that like Dave puts on later when he's hacking. They're completely ridiculous. I don't know. It just, a lot of it seemed like homage. Yeah. When they arrest Joey and they interrogate him and pull apart his computer, you see the Secret Service agent manipulating, not being sure what it is, a, a Nintendo Power Glove or something. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So good. Then, you know, at the end, when they, like, pull together the coalition of hackers, that's just such a group, of, a cool group of NPCs, right? Like, you have, like, this global coalition of characters. Um, and even that short montage, such, such a cool idea to put into a game, like, here's, like, a coalition of, pe of people like you, you know? How they motivate the characters, like, it's, like, very straightforward, like, putting their relations in danger or people they care about in danger, you know? Like, their friends are being framed and, you know, their mom, his mom might get put in jail. But, like, I think those are good, like, non-violent threats. Well, non-physically violent threats, anyway, to, like, throw at characters in these types of scenarios. The nice final touch is the mother arguing against the Secret Service at the end. She's not scared. She's pretty in danger. But despite everything that happened, she's still very supportive of her son and... It's nice, the idea that you have to protect a, an NPC and it's kind of considered somewhat weak, but towards the end, that NPC can still fight for itself or fight for the characters. Totally. I love how his mom was savvy, too. Like, his mom was like, don't mess with me. I know that you're not necessarily looking out for me and my son. And how, like, Kate's mom is a feminist writer. I, I died. It's just so good. Like, the, the other characters, like, really frame who the characters are. Like, their parents frame who they are really well, you know? And they even say, like, serial killers' parents are, like, you know, on a Grateful Dead tour that they've never returned from. And so he has to kind of fend for himself. And, like, yeah, it just, like, positions the characters very interestingly compared to their NPC counterparts. I love Joey's mom who unplugs his computer and uh, hits him with a magazine or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I can't remember, who is it? Freak, maybe? His mom is like super mad at him when the cops show up. That's Joey, isn't it? Yeah, Joey's mom flips out when the Secret Service comes to take his stuff. Yeah. 
Phil, anything to add? I really like the idea of um, that not all role-playing games need to use violence to solve problems. Like That's actually a thing in Hydro Hackers as well. You are actually ill-equipped to go head-to-head with the Water Authority, and that you are far better off sneaking, stealing, hacking, and things like that, that you can't straight up just take and, you know, with force very much of anything. So I think it's a really neat concept. I think not enough role-playing games kind of explore that space. I think a lot of role-playing games kind of go with that power fantasy trip of, you know, solve all problems, you know, by punching it. And uh, I appreciate games that look beyond that at times that solve problems (laughs) in other creative ways. I guess it reflects entertainment in general, at least Western entertainment. We don't have that many of those stories or or opportunities to play. And uh, yeah, it's really cool if there are systems out there which uh, encourage that. I think that's it then. Yep. Yeah. One final word about Hackers. Go watch it. It's timeless. It's fantastic. And then go get all three soundtracks because they are also amazing. Yeah, the soundtracks are just so good. I feel like that's 50% of any of my enjoyment of anything is like, does it have amazing music? And I feel like the 90s have have made me this way because like every, I feel like so many 90s movies had such great soundtracks. And like, this is, this is a really good one. Uh, especially if you're not familiar with the bands in question, you know, or the musicians, it's just like a lot of cool electronica from the time. Great. Um, Thank you very much to the two of you for joining us today. Thanks to everyone. Thanks, Classroom, for listening to yet another episode of Film Studies. You can find the RPG Academy and the released on Twitter, the RPG Academy at the RPG Academy, the released at released pod. I won't spell that. You can find it in the description of the episode. That's released. That's French for tabletop RPG fans. You will find our shows under the RPG Academy and the release also on pretty much any podcatcher of your choice. And we have that in common with the RPG Academy and myself that we do all this through our love for the hobby, but we do have expenses. And if you would consider supporting the release or the RPG Academy via Patreon, it would enable us to do more stuff, to record more stuff, maybe go to Origins to play uh, Idra Hackers with uh, Phil and Kira. Coming back to you, Kira, it's your last opportunity to plug whatever you have going on and maybe tell people where they can find you when you wish to be found. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Kira Serpentine, where I post pictures of my cute snakes and talk about games and do a lot of wildlife photos as well. I currently have a Kickstarter running, which is cool. It's for my game Fly Softly, which is about butterfly hybrids in the near future, kind of working to make a better world. Uh, So it's, it's a solar punk game. So, so, you know, it's it's genre adjacent to hackers, I guess. <laughs> Great. And I will include a link in the, the description. What about you, Phil? Misdirected Mark, Pandas, so much going on. Tell us uh, all about it and where to find you and all this stuff. So you can find me personally on Twitter at DNA Phil. You can find me on uh, the Misdirected Mark podcast, which you can get wherever you normally get your podcast or... It streams live on Twitch Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. 
You can also catch me on Pandas Talking Games. That you can also find wherever you get your podcasts from. I post occasionally at Gnome Stew. And when I'm making stuff, which I'm not making too much stuff during the pandemic, you can find those things through encoded designs. But mostly I'm kind of in low power mode riding through this pandemic. Pandas Talking Games. I see the opportunity of having you directly to tell you that a croissant is not a type of bread. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, but yeah, if you search over there, there are discussions about croissant being a bread or not. Uh, it's not. I'm going to plug one extra thing I was forgetting about. By the time this is out, you should be able to purchase my very first game. It's called Paris Gondo, the life-saving magic of inventorying. If I sum it up, it's Picture Marie Kondo, but she would advise murder hobos to go on dungeon crawling. So it's all about sparking joy with a game about tidying up your inventory and casting away encumbrance forever. So again, there will be a link in the description here. Thanks, everyone. See you next month, which should be, again, for a movie about in 1995, which I did see in 1995. Not only I saw it, but I think I saw it something like seven times in theater. Yeah, so for some reason, which I cannot really explain, I was obsessed with Tank Girl. So we will be discussing the movie adapted from the comics. And uh, yeah, I really look forward to going back to that one. Yes. Phil, uh, Kira, did you see Tang Girl back, back in the days? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. It's, an- it's another bad, good classic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Oh, goodbye. <laughs>